Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio. You're listening to Mark Chatterton. I'm one of the regular contributors to the Spirit Guides website and tonight I'm going to be interviewing Ian Lawton. Ian is a person who's done a lot of research about the past life regression, reincarnation and stuff like that and he's written several books all about the soul. His most well-known book is called The Book of the Soul and just recently this year he's brought out a new book called The Future of the Soul which looks at things like 2012, the shift in consciousness and what's going to happen in the future. So without further ado we'll get on with the interview. Okay the first question Ian is um, you previously had a career in IT and accountancy so what made you turn your back on the 9 to 5 and become a writer in the first place? Um, my heart is the best concise answer to that question. Um, I just had a very strong feeling that um, that uh, I'd had enough of being in the, the uh, commercial world and that uh, I needed to get out of it. Um, and uh, there were various catalysts and things that helped me with that. And one was a young lady that I met around that time and various other things. But um, it just felt very strongly that um, I needed to make a big change. And, uh, and I didn't know really what I was going to do other than vaguely try and start doing a bit of research into alternative things and mysteries and that sort of stuff. But uh, it all developed from there, really. So had had you had any sort of um, sort of spiritual interest before that time that sort of led you to become this point? No, I hadn't. And um, in fact, when I started, I wasn't really in. Uh, well, um, I think I had some interest in spiritual things, but it wasn't my primary um, uh, interest at that point. It was um, much more in those early days. I was interested in ancient history and sort of the Atlantis myths and. Uh, I, think, I remember the very first thing I ever did in research on was crop circles, actually. So I was into all of that alternative stuff, really, and that's what I started off with. Um, and then the spirituality and, and the focus on the spirituality came quite, you know, a good few years later, really. Okay. So you you wrote your first book, Giza, The Truth, on mm. which is based on the Egyptian pyramids, I understand. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. What made you choose that as a subject for your book? Uh, again, this was really all, I mean, I didn't really understand that at the time, but this was just me being led um, by um, a series of synchronicities or whatever, because uh, I had approached a magazine, um, which was called Quest for Knowledge, and uh, which was all about alternative stuff, and they said they were looking for an editor, and, and so I thought, well, I've never been an editor of a magazine in my life, um, and I know very little about all this alternative stuff, so I must be the ideal chap for the job. So I actually had the gall to phone them up and ask them if they would consider me for the position. And um, they said they just appointed somebody, uh, actually, at that point. But they said, why don't you give him a call, because he'll probably need some help. And that chap's name was Chris Ogilvy Herald. And Chris and I got to know each other. I submitted an article about crop circles to him, because he said, yeah, we could do with one on that. It was actually 12,000 words long, and he said... Um, there's no way I can publish it and I said why not so he said uh, well I'd need about three of the uh, editions of the magazine and with your article only in them for me to be actually able to fit all this in because I had no idea at all what I was doing or how long articles should be or anything so but anyway I think he must and that, I don't think that, art, that uh, article ever got published but he could tell that I could write and research so um, it was his idea to write the book about the pyramids in Egypt and um, he knew an agent, and he, but he didn't feel he could write it, and so he phoned me and said, would I write the book with him? So I said yes, because you know, it seemed a good way to get into 
to get into the market, as it were, and it was a hot topic at the time, so it went from there, really. I understand it sold over 20,000 copies. Is it? it did very well, yeah. Yes. yeah. So that's not bad for a first book, really. It wasn't bad at all. Although like for anybody who's listening who doesn't understand how the publishing industry works, that doesn't mean you actually make any money out of no. it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any reaction at all from the sort of more traditional academics at all? Uh, not especially. Actually, the biggest reaction we got was from the alternative um, uh, people who were interested in Egypt because what ended up happening is that I knew very little about Egypt and about the pyramids. And, and we'd, the book was called Giza the Truth, so I concentrated on the three big pyramids at Giza. Um, but um, I knew very little about all of this, and so I was starting it from scratch. And... Um, and, in, and and I kind of I'd read all the books by people like Hancock and Baval and all that lot and and was thought was very impressed by them you know I thought they they made a lot of sense but um, what I found when I started really doing the research properly was that an awful lot of those arguments put forward by the people in the alternative scene actually didn't stack up very well at all when you really went to town on them and did your research properly. So we ended up with a book that, certainly in terms of the theory side of things, um, fell down very heavily on the side of the the orthodox scholars about most of the different things to do with the the, 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 the pyramids in Egypt. Um, so uh, it it was a bit of a landmark book, really, in as much as it was trying to make the argument that you know when you there is no peer review in the alternative community but you know it, it we i just felt you know well, you've got to tell it how you see it and sometimes you've got to stand up and say that that um you know some of this stuff that's being written by alternative supposed scholars uh, even though it might appear very academic and properly footnoted and referenced and everything else you know actually doesn't really stand up at all they're just as guilty of being selective as they accuse um, the orthodox community of being so um, it was quite a breakthrough book from that point of view because I don't really think there had been that many books like that that had come out by people who were completely independent and didn't have any axe to grind, but actually were coming down on the orthodox, more on the orthodox side than the alternative side. So I think it made a, a big contribution in that way. Um, after that, you you did a second book called Genesis Unveiled. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit about that book? Yeah, I mean, this was the book that I always wanted to write um, at that point. Um, as I say, the pyramids hadn't really held a great fascination for me. It was kind of just a way in. Um, but this was a book that uh, I'd been researching for a few years by that stage. Uh, the, if you like, the Atlantis myths, as people would call them from all around the world. And, you know, looking at the ancient texts and traditions and seeing what they said about this um, antediluvian race and the origins of man and uh, the creation of man and all of these different sort of texts and traditions. And um, I had a strong feeling that they need that these things needed to be that there was a, 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 a an ancient civilization, if you like, that has kind of been lost and forgotten. Um, but I had a strong feeling that the the way to interpret these the the information, what scant information we had about them, was much more from a sort of cultural and a spiritual point of view than it was from any sort of technological point of view or extraterrestrial point of view, shall we say, because Lots and lots of alternative historians, if you like, at that point, and still now, were suggesting that either that, you know, we, as a, the whole of human, humanity was um, created by an extraterrestrial race who came down and genetically modified us and created us and blah, 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 and therefore we were under their control. Well, I looked into that pretty heavily and thoroughly rejected that. Um, 
and then you also have the people who talk very much about how Atlantis, in Atlantis, they had these flying machines and this and that and the other. And you know, again, I, 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 I don't think they had any sort of technology in that sense. What I do think this forerunner civilization had was. Um, originally a very high level of spirituality that they lost and they had certain capabilities and gifts um, from a sort of psycho-spiritual point of view that we are only starting to rediscover again now I think um, and uh, and I think they probably did have you know maybe they did were able to use crystal technology and that sort of thing in various ways but it would have been very much in conjunction with the power of the mind I think and, and therefore you know to suggest that they had you know, vehicles and that sort of stuff. I don't think that's the case. I th and, and it may even be that they're, I think they would have had permanent settlements, but they may not even have been building in stone. You know, I think they would have been there in the, in the temperate areas around the equator. So um, I just felt there was a slightly different story to be told about these, uh, these uh, our forerunners, as it were. And that's really what Genesis Unveiled was. And what was the reaction to that book? Uh, well, it sold pretty well. It sold up to 10,000 copies, but I didn't, to be honest, get a great deal of reaction from it from anybody um, and still haven't. Um, uh, and there are some very, well, I'd like to think there are some quite important scholarly ideas in there, particularly in relation to origin myths all around the world. I think I was able to show that they're very, very consistent and that they really are, if you get underneath the anthropomorphic godlike stuff, you know, they're all talking about this idea of there being a a source, a, a single source that contains the potential for everything and it bursts forth into creation sporadically to create the whole universe. And, you know, this is a very esoteric concept and it's there in all of the origin myths from around the world, even if it's somewhat veiled in the the ones that have been handed down to us. So, um, you know, and there's, there's issues like that in it that I think, you know, still probably deserve attention. Uh, and in actual fact, because of various issues, I'm actually going to be rewriting that book, um, a fairly heavy rewrite with some new stuff in it and a, a lot of the old, it was quite a long book, so I'm going to take some of the older stuff out uh, and re-releasing it under the title of The History of the Soul because there's some new information I think that's come forward that I'd like to sort of bring to bear on this and sort of you know bring it up to date as it were as a new edition. So, uh, right. There's hope for it to gain proper attention yet. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so you've, you've done these first two books and then you came out with, Book of the Soul, uh, yeah, in two thousand and seven, I believe. Absolutely. Um, by now, would you say your your views on spirituality had changed? Because you you obviously came up with the notion of rational spirit spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, they hadn't changed so much as they just no. crystallised much. Yeah, I think. yeah. Mm. So, what what would you uh, explain rational spirituality as being then? Um. Well, basically, the, the the way I came at it was that when I was researching for Genesis Unveiled, um, I already had, a, 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 one way or another, I'd been exposed to the idea of reincarnation and karma and that sort of thing, and I'd started to sort of feel quite comfortable with those ideas, um, to the extent that I understood them then. But... Uh, uh, Virgin, my publishers at the time, um, when they finally accepted Genesis Unveiled, they said, look, you know, you're talking about your interpretation of these ancient texts and traditions is all within this spiritual context of reincarnation and karma, but you haven't really given it, and you say there's evidence for it and stuff, but you haven't really mentioned any of this evidence to support those ideas. So I had to insert a whole new chapter, and that was when I started to pull together the evidence, if you like, for uh, a reincarnatory worldview. 
And it was from that, and a lot of people liked that chapter in particular, even though it wasn't really my work, it has to be said. So it was from that that I thought, this is really the, where I have to go from now on. And uh, I did a lot more research. And um, so uh, what I was suggesting, and still am, is that you can ground a spiritual worldview in the solid, fertile soil, as it were, of evidence and particularly modern evidence from things like near-death experiences and children who remember past lives and also from some past life regression cases with adults where there is obscure the, the big thing that i always concentrate on is obscure and verifiable information and uh, it's uh, it, it's the cases that have this very obscure information which still ends up being uh, verified that I think give us this very strong evidence to support a spiritual worldview. And then once you have that grounding, there are various uh, sort of assumptions you can, or maybe um, you know, uh, propositions you can produce from that. Um, and I ended up sort of over time uh, uh, um, uh, filtering out, if you like, a set of 10 propositions, which I think uh, basically uh, exp expand what, what rational spirituality is. Um, and uh, but uh, the one thing I would emphasize is because sometimes when people hear this phrase rational spirituality it doesn't gel with them and what I'm saying is although I'm trying to ground spirituality in, in hard evidence it's, I'm not suggesting for a moment that everything spiritual can be uh, reduced to um, evidential things and brought you know uh, 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 and analyzed in that way of course you know the most important aspects of spirituality are the the transcendental uh, aspects um, which you know are very hard to explain properly um, but i'm just saying that it's important to ground spirituality in evidence at, at this time because i think we can and then when you get people like richard dawkins suggesting that you know anything other than a materialist worldview is the uh, is the really the only intelligent worldview to adopt if you've got half a brain cell well you can reply and say well I'm sorry that's really not true in fact with the evidence that we've now got on the table it's much more logical to have a spiritual worldview and it's much more irrational to, to continue to put forward and protect a materialist worldview which really isn't supported by the evidence anymore um, I notice in the introduction for the book of the soul that you actually underwent past life regression mm. how what sort of was that like as an experience and did that influence a lot of your your thinking your present thinking it didn't really um it was just something that i very much felt i should do as part of my research for the book um and um i came down after a couple of false starts i ended up finding a chap called andy tomlinson who um, I ended up writing my next book, The Wisdom of the Soul, with, and um, uh, and Andy and I, uh, well, Andy runs the Past Life Regression Academy. In fact, I've just completed my own training as a regression therapist as well now, so under uh, Andy's academy, so we've become very good friends. Um, but um, um, so it was him that I found, and I came down to see him in, uh, uh, in uh, his home in uh, Dorset, and um, was lucky enough to be lying on the couch and going to this experience of being tortured during the Inquisition, which was very pleasant. And <laughs> especially, I can thoroughly recommend reliving having your fingernails pulled out one by one. Um, but it, actually, so as not to put people off, uh, I mean, you know, although there was emotion coming out while this was happening, um, you know, I was to some extent protected, even though I was in the trance state and remembering this stuff. I wasn't fully, fully reliving it, um, and most people don't. So you only tend to if there's really, it's important from a soul perspective that you do really relive something. And then if you do it with a very trained person, you can um, 
it can be healed and, and uh, worked with. So I don't want to put people off. But, um, yeah, it was certainly an interesting experience and, and quite a vivid one. And um, and it felt pretty authentic to me. But there, there certainly there was nothing in terms of detail that came up in it that I couldn't have made up from my imagination. So I've never suggested that my own personal experiences uh, in any sense um, uh, add to the body of evidence for rational spirituality. It was just it was a, it was an important experience for me personally. Um, I noticed you actually published this book yourself. Did mm. I'm surprised that none of the big publishers were interested in publishing it. Well, it's funny because you know publishing is a difficult game at the moment and uh, and has been for a few years now. And uh, in fact, it's quite a funny story because when Genesis Unveiled was published by Virgin. I'd actually put the synopsis or proposal for Genesis Unveiled to them many years before, back in around about sort of 2000, 2001, I think, and they rejected it at that point. Um, and then by about 2004, I had completely written the book and I'd already published it online, but it was, you know, I wasn't very happy with that. And I approached Virgin again, sort of thinking, well, they might have completely forgotten by now, which they kind of had. And uh, I was still dealing with the same editor. I mean, she remembered, but that was okay. She was on side with me. And... Um, but there was a new sales director who was an ex-car salesman, apparently, and uh, people would be probably quite fascinated to learn that you know these publishing companies are under tremendous pressure and they get an awful lot of proposals for books. So when they're having a what they call an acquisitions meeting to consider what books they're going to acquire, they literally give them like 30 seconds each. They don't have more time than that. And they literally have a half-page bit of information about the proposed book and they make a decision there and then. Well, with Genesis Unveiled, apparently this chap who was an ex-car salesman was uh, sort of fairly rough and ready, but obviously a very good salesman. I'll use the polite language, but he said, well, his last book did okay, so I suppose we might as well have a crack at this one. And I don't think they really read the synopsis at all. So at that point, then the book was taken on by them properly. And... Um, uh, and even even then, to sell the book into Virgin, I had to tone down the spiritual aspects of it in the summary. I mean, I didn't tone it down in the book itself, but you know, they they would have, they would have been put off by making it too overtly spiritual. And certainly, when it came to my much you know more obviously spiritual books like the Book of the Soul, um, they just didn't want to publish it, and that's okay. They didn't feel it was their kind of material, and uh, and it's a very you know it, when you move away from ancient history into proper spiritual books, it's um, it's a very, very crowded and a very, very competitive market. Um, and even with all the love in the world, you know, the honest truth is that there's a huge amount of absolute nonsense being published, to be honest, but that's just the way it goes. But it just makes it a very, very crowded market where it's very difficult for the good stuff to get through. Um, and in the end, I had to take the decision to go uh, uh, to, to publish personally. And, and I, I don't regret that. It may still be the books will end up with a publisher at some point, but, um, uh, you know, they're finally getting their... They're getting their day in the sun. I've got. Uh, I've just been. Um, uh, well, I say fortunate enough, but finally Barnes and Noble have agreed to take all of my books over in the United States, so they'll be properly stocked in the biggest books uh, book chain over there. And I'm pretty sure the Waterstones will do the same over here now on the back of that. So they will finally get their proper airing. So, you know, it's all as it should be. But um, yeah, the the, the self publishing route is it's a hard one. It's not an easy one. I, I would recommend you have to have a great deal of patience and not too many expectations to anybody who's going to do it. So, in in the book of the soul, you argued the case for both reincarnation and karma, mm. and you also explored the idea of past life regression. Um, yeah. With when you were doing your research with the um, past life regressions, you went even further back to the notion of an interlife. Yeah, that that came out more in your next book, The Wisdom of the Soul. 
Could you explain a little bit about this concept of the interlife? Yeah. Um, well, actually, to be fair, it was a fairly heavy component in the original book of the soul yeah. because um, what had happened is I came across when I was adding this extra chapter into the into Genesis Unveiled, and um, when asked by Virgin, I came across the work of this chap, Michael Newton, who many of the people listening to this may well have heard of. Um, he's an American. Uh, uh, psychiatrist who uh, for many years um, uh, was taking his clients into not just into past lives but into their time between lives in the spirit realms, light realms, whatever you want to call them. And his findings of what his subjects were doing in this time, this sort of interlife period as I call it, were really quite astounding and, and his books are sold in uh, hundreds of thousands so you know many many people have now been um, exposed to these ideas which is wonderful. But what I discovered was that back in the late 60s and 70s and early 80s, there were a number of pioneers who had done this work and um, taken their clients into the interlife. And they were nearly all qualified psychiatrists or psychologists who had originally been of a more materialist or atheist persuasion and just got persuaded by the work that they were doing and the evidence before their eyes. Nearly all of them stumbled across this interlife experience with their subjects almost completely by accident, just by initiating uh, slightly imprecise commands while the subjects were in trance. And most important of all, they basically were all coming up with a very consistent set of experiences in the interlife, which include very briefly, I, I mean, I tend to summarize them into five, which is the sort of transition into the, the spirit realms and the healing process so that you can sort of raise the vibrations to properly be in the light realms. The second one is the some, some sort of review of the life that you've just had. Um, the third one is quite often some sort of experience of being with other quite souls that you're quite closely associated with. Some people call them a soul group or a set of soul mates um, and sort of doing sort of review and learning activities with them. Um, the fourth one is... Uh, and perhaps the most important, the one with the most implications of the lot, is the idea of next life planning. In other words, that we as souls plan the next life we're going to have. We're actively involved in planning and choosing the, the challenges we're going to face so that we can grow and learn as a soul. Um, and the fifth one is the whole element of returning back into the physical. So those five elements were, were basically present in the work of all of these pioneers. And they... Had all it was. This was the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There was no internet then. They were all working independently. They weren't publishing the results of their research, or the few that did didn't get around to doing it till the sort of mid 80s. So this original research was all being done independently, and yet they were all coming up with the same information. And um, I think there are very strong arguments that the independence and the objectivity of that original research make it. I mean that this interlife evidence, as I call it, is is very very strong evidence in support of rational spirituality as well. Um, you know, most people know about it, and you know, an awful lot of spiritual people know about this interlife experience now and have read about it because of the popularity of Michael Newton's books, which first came out in the mid 90s. But back in the day when this pioneering work was being done, people didn't know about it very much. So I think it was really really good, really really good evidence, um, and it tells us an awful lot about how we should interpret. Um, you know what sort of framework we should put on this idea of reincarnation and uh, and what it all means basically also you you say about the notion of the holographic soul could you yeah. say a little bit, explain a little bit about that please yeah well i i that was an idea that i first came up with in that second 
spiritual but the wisdom of the soul um and really the reason i came up with it was because for some time i'd been sort of trying to grapple with this idea that clearly the evidence i was talking about within rational spirituality was very much indicating that we are individual souls that reincarnate and have many lives in order to experience various different things and to grow from one life to the next and grow as a soul and then at some point this process is complete and we don't really, you know, we've, we've taken everything we can from the physical plane and or at least earth and we go on and have other experience in other planes or dimensions or whatever um, and continue the growth process. So that came very strongly out from all the different elements of evidence that I'd uh, been putting together for rational spirituality. But of course I was also very much aware that the, if you like, the slightly more Buddhist viewpoint on things is, uh, using the word very loosely, is that we are all part of the one or the all or source, whatever you want to call it, um, which is also clearly true. I mean, it, it's supported by so many different things, um, you know, people having uh, hallucinogenic experiences and just proper transcendental experiences when meditating in all sorts of different ways. And also, I, I guess there are elements of modern science now which very much support the view as well that we are just all interconnected and interconnected and all part of one basic energy. So, and of course, what I felt was that an awful lot of spiritual people tend to sort of really emphasise one or the other of these approaches. You know, they either they either concentrate very much on the idea of us as individual souls, but maybe think rather less about the idea that we're all part of the one. Whereas, uh, on the other hand, certainly people, and again I use the word very loosely, but people who tend to be of a more Buddhist type persuasion um, do tend to go much more down this route of we're all part of the one or, or, or the all or source. And in fact, a lot of strains of Buddhism, a lot of people don't realize this, do not really support the idea of individual soul reincarnation at all. They have a concept called anatar, which really is much more about having no no self, is what it means in loosely translated. So there isn't really this continuity in Buddhism, in a lot of strains of Buddhism, this idea of a continuity of one soul identity moving from one life to the next. Now I think that personally that's wrong. I think it's support you know the evidence supports the idea that there is very much this individual soul continuity, but clearly we are all part of source as well. And now there's, I'm not suggesting for a moment that there aren't lots of spiritual sources who have tried to get to grips with this idea of us being both individual and universal soul consciousnesses all at the same time. But the thing that I tried to bring to the party was that if you apply the, I mean, the idea of the hologram since its discovery back in the mid 20th century has been applied to all sorts of different things. And it's certainly been applied in spiritual scientific circles a lot, but I never felt it had quite been applied in the right way. To me, if you apply the idea of the hologram to soul consciousness itself, uh, that's when you end up with the, the, the most wonderful um, way of trying to get to grips with how individual and universal soul consciousness work. Because what I say is, you know, that soul consciousness is, is holographic. In other words, we are both individual aspects of source and full holographic representations of source all at the same time. But you know, this doesn't mean that the idea of soul individuality is in itself an illusion because one of the key principles of the hologram is that the part contains the whole but is clearly distinguishable from it. Um, and I go into this in more detail. It's actually not very complicated and I have diagrams um, in one of my more recent books, a little book that I call Your Holographic Soul, 
um, and how to make it work for you. Um, there's a nice little explanation there with a diagram of exactly what I'm getting at here in terms of the principle of the hologram and how the photographic plate of a hologram works and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, a lot of people have found it's a very useful way of, of using this idea of the hologram to actually get to grips with how the interplay between individual and universal soul consciousness works for all of us because we are all both. Um, I noticed that about a couple of years ago you, you brought out a short version of the Book of the Soul called the Little Book of the Soul yeah. and a longer version called the Big Book of the Soul. What was the thinking behind this? Yeah, well, the Big Book of the Soul is a, re a complete rewrite of the original Book of the Soul. Um, but having already... I wanted to write the Little Book of the Soul as a very simple introduction to all of these things because the... the Big Book of the Soul as it now is, is a reasonably lengthy and detailed piece of work with quite a lot of sort of relatively scholarly stuff in it, which is not for everybody. So I wanted a, a nice simple introduction, which is what the Little Book of the Soul is. It's a small pocket-sized book and it's nice and simple and it has a lot of the key cases as just sort of you know, presented in story format, really, um, with a little bit of analysis interspersed between them. Um, but then, uh, when I was doing the rewrite of the original Book of the Soul, it seemed only appropriate then to call it the Big Book of the Soul, so that the two were sort of clearly distinguished and the naming seems to work for people. So, the Big Book of the Soul is a pretty hefty rewrite of the original Book of the Soul, because again, I'd come across a lot more research and I got, so, you know, to be quite plain about it, you know, there was quite a few things I got wrong in the original book and I wanted to get them right because the big book of the soul is the real source book for rational spirituality, so it's important that it stays dynamic and updated and as I learn more things. So that was really the thinking behind those two. And then um, a good friend of mine rightly said, when I rewrote the big book of the soul, all of the information about the, the, my concept of the holographic soul are in there in the last chapter of it, but a very good friend of mine rightly said to me, well, you know, you know really, you, you, this concept of the holographic soul is getting a little bit lost in your other bigger books. You know, perhaps you should just write a book that just concentrates on that. And I could see the logic of that, and I thought it was sensible. So, and I, But I decided it didn't need to be a big, complicated book because the detail had already been written in the big book of the soul. So I just decided to write another small, simple book, which was just called Your Holographic Soul and How to Make It Work for You. And that really just has the sort of theory stuff in the first section in a nice simple sort of question and answer style uh, and then in the second section this was when I really decided to do some self-help writing for the very first time um, I mean one of the other things that has happened to me personally is that over the last few years I've I would like to think I've managed to do a fair bit of personal growth um, for various reasons and in various ways um, but I've done a lot of work on my own personal sales basically and uh, and it finally felt that with all the different snippets of self-help information that I've picked up over the years from lots of different books by other people and uh, you know and my own experiences as well and various other things I thought maybe I could finally take the chance of actually putting that down in a nice simple again a nice simple sort of question and answer format um, because, you know, having lived a lot of it, I finally thought I might have something useful to say that would help other people. So, And certainly, um, you know, the feedback I've had so far is that people do find that useful. Um, it's, I've kept it nice and simple, but um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty good stuff. And uh, I also work very closely, actually, with about 10 very close friends who just sort of picked themselves, really, for me as the process, the editing process for that book was going on. You know, it was... Um, it was very important to work with other people, I felt then, and uh, 
again, it's very difficult when you're an author to sort of take really good, strong, constructive criticism on, on a book. But you really, I think you have to. And, and, and if you do it actually in the editing stage, when people can actually give you that information and you can really make some significant changes, I ended up with that little book, um, you know, virtually completely rewriting it from, from, from cover to cover uh, with all the input from my various good friends and colleagues. But it was fantastic input and it ended up making it so much of a stronger book. Um, so um, yes, that's a yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very happy with that, and I think it will it, it has a lot to offer people. Good. I was going to bring you right up to the present now because yeah. you just recently brought out your next book, The Future of the Soul. Yeah. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about this book? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really the last one. So the Your Holographic Soul was written earlier this year. Well, late now, over Christmas really, and I brought it out I think in February March time, and then. Um, uh, obviously, everybody will be aware that the whole issue of 2012 and uh, everything around 2012 um, has been gaining an awful lot of attention for a long time now, and I hadn't really got heavily involved in it, but partly as a result of the pe- all the wonderful people that I've met through training as a regression therapist, um, I became increasingly exposed to these ideas and was increasingly working with people who really were demonstrating the reality of how this energy shift is affecting people. You know, people... I've seen some very good friends and colleagues just grow so much so rapidly in the last year. Um, and I think I've been lucky enough to have the same happen to myself too. And um, so any sort of final, I mean, I used to be rather cynical about this, but you know, as soon as you switch your brain over and start actually looking at the, the, the beauty and the opportunity of this, uh, this energy shift that is not, you know, the other thing I emphasize is, this is not about waiting for some magical date in 2012. This is all happening right now, and it has been for a while. And as soon as you switch yourself onto it and open up to it, you find, you know, you do open yourself and you just automatically attract into your life people who are resonating with you and are making the same changes and shifts and growing the same way that you are. And it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And so as a result, but I also felt that quite a lot of the stuff that I'd heard about 2012 didn't feel very grand. Well, either, you know, it was the Hollywood blockbuster doom and gloom catastrophe stuff, or it was what I call, and again, I say this with as much love as I possibly can, but, you know, the slightly more sugar-coated sort of sweet saccharine version of 2012, which I also didn't feel was sufficiently grounded to be really letting people know what was going on. So I did feel very much drawn to the fact that I was going to have to do some work with this myself in some way or another, and I kind of already knew that I was going to have to write a, another little simple book, called, and I was going to be called The Future of the Soul. What actually happened on the third module of my regression training was that um, we, almost, not as a joke, that's not quite right, but really not taking it very seriously, a number of us decided to... Um, uh, uh, write a few questions up about 2012 and to put them to one of the girls in the group who was had done a little bit of channeling before, but not a great deal. Um, and we only spent about 20 minutes putting some very rudimentary questions about 2012 and the, and the whole energy shift thing together. Um, but Janet uh, Trelaw, who was the subject, um, goes into trance very, very quickly anyway, and almost as soon as she'd gone into trance, she was shaking from head to foot. I mean, obviously, some sort of energies were operating within her that were very, very powerful. And, you know, even if she was a terrific actress, trust me, she couldn't stay like that for a whole hour, which is what she did, and she was aching from head to foot afterwards. And just the messages that started to come through were incredibly lucid, and we felt incredibly important. Um, 
And there were quite a few aspects that certainly none of us had come across before in any of the literature. I mean, not that I was a, an absolute expert on it, I have to say, but there were various messages coming through, like for, you know, and which I felt originally were counterintuitive. But as soon as the messages came out, I was immediately thinking, oh, God, that, of course, that makes sense. I just hadn't thought of it like that. So it's things like, you know... Um, uh, the the sort of destruction that's been wrought on the planet for so many tens of years, uh, or even hundreds of years virtually, um, and the massive overpopulation of the planet at the moment. Um, the council, who they came to tell, uh, they called themselves uh, in the end, uh, that were Janet was channeling, they said, um, this is all absolutely as it should be. This is planned. They said, in just the same way that as an individual soul, you have to overcome obstacles and hurdles in order to grow and to really move forward, you know, you don't really grow and move forward, certainly in the physical plane, if you never have any obstacles or hurdles to overcome. It's only by doing those things that you really move forward. And they said, and it's just like that for the consciousness of Mother Earth itself, you know. And so this is really helping her to raise her energies, to take advantage of this shift that's happening, this energy, this big energy shift that's happening at the moment. Um, they, and there's various other, there's some hugely important things, I can't obviously mention them all now, but um, the other very big part of this is that they strongly emphasize that this is all part of a 26,000 year cycle. So there have been two or three of these events before that have had an impact on humanity, uh, because humanity in its modern form hasn't been around for all that long, obviously. Um, and they gave, because I have a particular interest in the history of the thing in terms of how humanity has developed from a spiritual point of view, because that's what Genesis Unveiled was all about, I asked a lot of questions about that in our second session. We had a much longer four-hour session uh, about a month later and got loads more information. And, of course, I was properly prepared then because I put some very detailed questions together. And we had some wonderful information come out, as I say, not only about the future but about the past as well. Um, and so it just felt very important to get that out. And, of course, that was the future of the soul. It had been given to me on a plate. And um, although, of course, channeled information is a bit of a departure for me compared to the rational spirituality. Yeah, I was about to say that. that. Yeah, it's quite, yeah. quite a it, difference, really. Well it, well, it is. Yeah, mm. of course it is, Mark. But, um, you know, it's something that I had to take a, uh, take a risk with because I just think this stuff is incredibly important. Uh, and I'm not suggesting for a moment it's 100% foolproof, but it certainly resonated with all of us. And if it resonates with the other people that... that that read it and they, they find it useful to help them to see what's going on at the moment and to the most important message the council gave us was this is an incredible opportunity that you have been you know as souls we've all known about this for thousands of years because it's part of a cycle so we a lot of us have been planning for this wonderful event for thousands of years over many lives and to then not be aware of what's happening now and to take full advantage of it would be absolutely a travesty so, you know, of course, I felt it was incredibly important to put this information out there. And it, unfortunately, if that puts some of my other readership off, then I, that's obviously a risk that I just have to run, I felt. Have you had uh, much reaction from people yet about the future of the soul? Uh, a few bits and pieces. Most people really resonating with it and absolutely loving it. I've had one or two people, obviously, who did who reacted just as I've just said. You know, they found the departure too much for them. But that's understandable and that's absolutely fine. I don't have, you know, I'm aware that's going to happen. But for the most part, people finding the book are the ones who need to find it, and it's absolutely resonating with them. And um, I think it's, you know, I, of course I think it's important. And, I mean, there's an element of this which is nothing to do with me and my own work at all now. This is much bigger than that, and it's, and it's about the messages for what's really happening right now and how we should really flow with this shift and take advantage of it. You know, it's not all going to be sweetness and light. There are going to be a number of major upheavals. 
I deliberately didn't ask exactly where they're going to be, but they're going to be all around the world and they're going to be over a course of you know, five to seven years and there will be you know, big changes. And so you know, there will be disruption and, and, and there will be upheaval. But when we come out the other side of all of that, we will be in a very different place and it will be a wonderful place to be. Um, so, you know, and, and if you have a soul perspective, really, you know, we shouldn't be fearing death if that's what is in our life plan at this point. Well, then so be it. You know, we'll have many, plenty more chances. So, I mean, a lot of this is very much about looking at this with your soul head on, your soul perspective, not from a human perspective. But it's, you know, for me, it's incredibly powerful stuff. And uh, I do obviously encourage people to, to pick the book up and, uh, and learn more about it. Good. Right, I've got one final question. Yeah. What's next in the pipeline for me and Lawton? Well, um, as I say, really because of all this new information that's come out about the history stuff than these 26,000-year cycles, um, that's the bit that I really want to work on and do some more research on to build into a revised version of Genesis Unveiled, which will come out as the history of the soul. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done for that. Um, there's also a novel that I wrote some years ago called The Autobiography of an Angel, which is kind of a, you know, a highly experienced soul coming down to earth at various times in humanity's history to help out and push things forward, um, which is a novel, but it's, um, it's just another way of putting messages across. And I'd like to get that out to people at some point soon. Um, and I have my therapy work now. I've just, you know, I'm pretty close to qualifying, and I've certainly finished all my training. So, um, you know, I have my therapy business to develop, and um, for some reason, I've got some serious plans to go and spend a few months on a beach in Thailand over the winter. So, there's a lot to be done. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for all that interview. And um, obviously, if you want to find out more about Ian, you can check on his website, which is www ianlawton.com where you can get all, all buy all his books and find out more about rational spirituality mm. so thank you very much then ian that's a pleasure thank you very much they were good uh, mark they were very good questions as well thank you for that okay lovely